Hola, mi gente. This episode, we're going to talk about memory, not only the study of collective memory, but its relationship to culture and what is filtered and what is remembered, what is encoded in our minds and also our bodies, the relationship of memory and power, the relationship of memory and society and how they determine what is remembered and how all of that not only is fascinating, but it has broader implications, especially for anthropology and psychology, this intersection. I am not only an anthropologist and am part of our association, but I also am part of the psychological association because My work is really influenced by psychoanalysis because a lot of my research is in Argentina and psychoanalysis flourished in Argentina. And a lot of it, again, has to do with the relationship of culture and how it filters what is remembered. And I think if we think about the relationship of memory in Latin America and all the competing narratives that exist around justice it really puts into focus how memory is also political. It is a means of legitimation to validate the present. It is a means of resistance to contest the present, to resist, to argue, to put on the record. The past is subject to multiple interpretations. It's subjective, but there are always objective truths. For example, the dictatorship in Latin America Throughout the Southern Cone disappeared various young people. That is a fact. The absence of their bodies is the truth. And so it becomes very complicated in that history is a battleground for rival truths, right? There's truth with a capital T and there is truth with a lowercase t. And that one perhaps is the one that really shows how selective memory can be and is remembering an act of resistance in itself. How, what, why? Forgetting too, right? There is something called structural amnesia. Barnes writes about it. There is the censorship of memory and we see that even in places like in the United States in Florida, where you're not allowed to study African-American history anymore, right? Or you can't say gay, which leaves a blind spot, right? An important blind spot in the way children are educated in this country because the past is constructed and often with a purpose. And so we have to think about history as happening in real time as well. This is why when we think about oral history versus written history, we know that certain conditions and factors that allow each to be produced. There is there are alternative histories teaching Latina women for so long when I was in Hunter College, I really focused on having a historical frame because a lot of the texts that I found were more focused on what men had to say about the experiences of women or how they should move their bodies or where they should be or how they should speak. I'm very interested in counter history, and this is where I feel popular culture really takes form and the way it helps build alternative or unofficial histories. And I think for 
the Latin American or the the history of the Americas rather remembering is important because so many of us grow up in let's say the United States and we're part of a greater history that often we do not see ourselves in right I mean, if you think about how america is taught right or the united states thanksgiving did not happen the way we celebrate it i think we could all agree on that but also how do i divorce myself from what's happening in the americas where the reason i'm here in the united states or was born here was because of colonialism was because of imperialism globalization all these historical moments that are remembered differently and you start seeing the invention of tradition right because there are things that we love to remember and others that we need sometimes to forget in order to cope and that's why i think it's fascinating when we put in conversation these ideas with let's say the science of remembering thinking about the importance also of how we teach about history and its relationship to memory I tend to believe that it is important to have an inquiry-based learning, right? And that allows us to then think about film and music and other media sources also as important historical scripts, right? Because then it allows for multi-perspective. And historical literacy is important because we all need to have critical historical thinking in order to have a sense of direction, especially when you think about it in the context of Latin American communities in the United States or Latino communities in the United States because we're a people at a crossroads, right? And so it is important to think about experience and memory and how that also fosters a sense of place and belonging or even a sense of exclusion. I think of the case of undocumented Americans here and their sense of belonging is very much rooted in this place because there is not a lot of movement between, let's say, being in the United States and then the country of origin, right? Because you can't leave. If you leave, then you don't have entry. And so it's very complicated But it's also going to do a number on your psyche if you're constantly being told that you don't belong here. Or when people say things like speak American, right? It is frustrating to hear those ideas circulate. But I think popular culture is really pushing back on it. I don't know how many of you have noticed if you're watching English language television All of a sudden on places like Peacock or um, on Bravo television, I start seeing Spanish commercials. No one's explaining why these commercials are in Spanish or television shows that now are multi-language, right? So like there is this great show, La Cabeza de Joaquin Mara Mata. It's a cowboy western on um, Prime Video and it's set in the border, right? And it's showing also California when it had native communities and different Asian diasporas that were building the railroads. And I think what's great about this entire series, aside from it providing a different perspective of, you know, the, the territories that were being colonized, it's multilingual right like so you'll have it in spanish english depending 
on who's speaking and when. And I think that we need to get used to also telling stories in various voices that are still authentic to the United States because these communities are very much embedded in the social fabric. So representation is really important, which has been a big critique of different artists like John Leguizamo, who says, how are we over 20% of the population and yet we are underrepresented in roles of protagonist roles on television in Hollywood and people think well that's popular culture we need more representatives in the house of representatives or we need you know political power but how do you divorce them right they they are inextricable Another aspect of memory that I think it is important for us to think about is competing memories. I'm going to give you an example of the way we remember and how this happens, right? Uh, we've all probably seen Mount Rushmore, the National Memorial at Keystone, South Dakota, created between 1927 to 1941, so before World War II. Uh, but it's a monument and a site-specific art. But the same place, right, where you see George Washington and the chiseled face of Lincoln, it's actually originally known to the Lakota Sioux as Six Grandfathers. This is a Native American sacred mountain that was renamed after Charles E. Rushmore, a prominent New York lawyer during an expedition in 1885. The site then was seized from the Lakota tribe after the Grand Sioux War of 1876 to 1877. So the same site holds competing meanings and the way it is remembered it's gonna be different or it could actually be remembered simultaneously in different ways that elasticity of memory i think is the most fascinating thing and in latin america you see a lot of memorials that are on top of other memorials. So throughout Latin America, you'll see, for example, especially countries in the Southern Cone, uh, memorials of people who were disappeared, the victims, as a way to ensure that it is not forgotten. Because when people forget, they repeat, right? We all know this uh, tired and true story, right? But it's interesting because we like to kind of wipe out, whitewash, history, sanitize it, uh, but it's really hard to say that it, it happens in a way that is clean, right? Or that it doesn't leave behind residuals, hauntings, lingerings, right? And that's why throughout New York City during the Black Lives Matter movement, you saw a lot of the very statues around uh, people who owned slaves being taken down through, through, throughout uh, New York City. Enslaved people, uh, or formerly enslaved people, their histories, right, were, were being distorted by celebrating the very people who oppressed them. I think about competing memories also when we say things like ground zero. Ground Zero was also Hiroshima in 1945, but now we think about it in terms of the World Trade Center site. The term Ground Zero may be used to describe the point of the Earth's surface where an explosion occurs. 
So there's more than one ground zero, depending on where you find yourself historically, how much information you have. I think about this a lot because at the end of the day, even in my work, I also think about oral history, how it is important to maintain through storytelling, performance, collective memories, and narrative, these alternate stories, right? These unofficial histories, which are essentially silenced by others, by the state at times when you counter their truth, which is at the center of the Oscar-nominated film um, from Argentina, 1985, where they're trying to also put on the record a truth that it's getting lost in our history books. And when I see shows on Hulu that look at the lives of important figures in the history of the Americas, especially women like the Mirabal sisters, and you see that on Hulu now, there is a show that is telling their story. And then there is also a show that is based on a fiction account, but it does tell the backstory of Evita in Argentina. And it's played by the actress uh, Natalia Oreiro, I think. Oh, no, 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 not Natalia Oreiro. I apologize. It's the actress that was in this soap opera, Malparida from Argentina. But anyway, these stories, although they're shown on these very popular global platforms, are an effort, again, to maintain a sense of a pueblo, right? A sense of a people. Josh Connerton writes that there were people who realized the struggle of citizens against state power is the struggle of their memory against forced forgetting and who made it their aim from the beginning, not only to save themselves, but to survive as witnesses to later generations to become relentless recorders. Because even when there is an attempt to erase a memory, like our bodies also remember. One of the things that the Junta Militar did in Argentina when they would go visit the families of those that they were holding in detention centers, they would go, and Diana Taylor writes about this in her book, Disappearing Acts, they would take the photos of these individuals that were in the homes to disappear them, to literally try to erase their memories. And state violence and memory tend to be contentious, right? Because at the end of the day, one is trying to give a story where the state is not showing the oppression or repression against their citizens. And the other one is saying, hey, this happened, right? And even if we try to ignore it or forget our bodies or the lack of bodies, right? The disappeared give a testament to the injustice. Now, trauma is memory as well, right? And we need to understand this relationship between memory and identity, this shared structure of a sentiment, a sense of trauma and its contradictory relation to the question of the past. And this is to be a principal argument when we look at the works in this section on memory that are constantly trying to make sense of the past in an effort to move forward. 
So Depeche Sharktarati, I probably butchered the name and I apologize. According to him, he writes, a historical narrative leads up to the event in question, explaining why it happened and why it happened when it did. And this is possible only when the event is open to explanation. What cannot be explained belongs to the marginalia of history. So it's hard to also explain things that are happening in real time. But this is why I think it's so important to record, to journal, to write, to take photos, to always think of these stories as evidence of a life lived, of an experience. And this is why, especially for the context of our work, experience is evidence. Especially when you're talking about communities, ethnic groups, special groups, because there is a tension between the vernacular and let's say official memories and what counts and what doesn't. There is this tension between what has been called cultural leaders and then ordinary people, el pueblo. And this has a lot to do with cultural trauma because if we think about the experiences of blacks in the Americas because there is an anti-blackness that is unfortunately tied to Latinidad. We have to think about this in the context of the individual and cultural trauma that happens as a result of these type of marginalizing ideas that run across the Americas, right? And so a cultural trauma is a memory accepted and publicly given credence by a relevant membership group and evoking an event or situation which is A, laden with negative effect, B, represented as incredible, and C, rewarded and regarded as threatening a society's existence or violating one or more of its fundamental cultural presuppositions. And I think this is at the center of why Places like Florida, right, do not want to teach African-American history because if you look outside, if you go through Florida as you're driving through, you see the residuals of being a former slaveholding society. And it is really built in the inequality of Florida, right? If we look at it as a microcosm of the United States and the cultural trauma that runs through these communities, and we see it in mediated representations instead of direct experience. And this is why popular culture brings it to the surface. And I think about this a lot because at the end of the day, this type of work to me has broader implications also to how I construct the sense of health and self in the context of these histories. History is also of repression, right? I always say a lot of our family members because of their experiences, whether it is because of poverty, violence, whatever it may be, sometimes come off as unreliable narrators. But once I started understanding the way our brain's neuroplasticity ensures that we cope, right? So there are things that we will forget as a means for us to be able to survive. And I think that is interesting because if we think about the way repression works, it's a defensive inhibition of unbearable mental content, the function of rejecting and keeping something out of consciousness. And so 
honestly, this has to do with cognitive avoidance, but it's not that sometimes people choose to do this or even state it becomes almost like necessary. One of the more primitive or immature defenses that we have as human beings, even if memories are not conscious, they continue to influence our behavior. For example, a person who suffered child abuse may continue to have difficulties in relationships and they may not know why, right? For me on a personal level, it took years of therapy for me to understand why I've acted the way I did as an adult, right? My adult problems were a result of my childhood issues that were unresolved. Now think about this in terms of a nation, right? A nation sometimes needs a lot of work in order to be able to get itself on a right track. But think about it, if you've been constantly oppressed, right? If you've been constantly abused, violated, subject to structural violence in your everyday, then it's hard to trust. And in order for change to happen, you need not only time, but consistency. Some say repression is different than suppression, which is an intentional squashing of a thought. This is the refusing to think about something painful or anxiety producing. And the range could be from losing a loved one to a civil war to also uh, losing your home because there is no opportunity. And so you have to leave up north in search of sustenance. But the conscious process, think of trying to avoid with repression. However, one doesn't have choice or volition. Some repression studies have shown evidence. Women who suffered, for example, sexual assault as girls were asked years later about being treated at a hospital when younger, and 40% had no recollection of the abuse. Other studies, especially with World War II veterans, they had repressed memories of traumatic events during war. When memories were recalled in therapy, psychological issues tended to disappear. There is one patient that I read about in 12 Patients. It's actually a book about treating patients in Bellevue Public Hospital in New York City. And there was one that was from Argentina, and she was carrying the burden of the dirty war. So she had migrated. And see, people could migrate. They could leave these places, but these places may not leave them, right? The way they are carried out in their minds, in their hearts, in their DNA, like it literally changes you trauma. And we see it in our genetic sequence. If you're a Holocaust survivor, a descendant from one, or descendant of a formerly enslaved community, we have it in our DNA as a way to show, hey, this happened, right? No matter what, it is there as a reminder. And so we have primary defenses like aggression or idealization or even distortion. And then we have more complex ones like undoing, projection, individualism. Defenses are not a bad thing. They are actually necessary and everyone uses them. But defenses are automatic and usually unconscious processes. You don't tell yourself to use them. They serve to reduce or cope with anxiety or fear and resolve emotional and mental conflict, protect one's self-esteem, protects one's sense of security, 
which is hard, right? If you are, let's say, a woman in the Americas where there is a growing femicide epidemic, right? And so how do you work through this in art? How do you show this relationship of memory and trauma? And sometimes memories may include narrative, visual imagery, sensory, so it's somatic, affective feelings, interpersonal behaviors, but traumatic memory is more sensory. It's linked with intense arousal. It's fragmented, right? It's not linear. And it's more about the body rather than verbal memory because the body, as the famous text says, keeps the score. So traumatic memories are encoded or remembered in a different way from normal everyday events. This is why the role of therapy is to develop the use of the frontal cortex to make sense of and manage reactivity, which then in places like Argentina, where you could basically barter for a session of therapy, and it's really hard to get like pharma for mental health in Argentina, but because you can't even get in Argentina, for example, a sleeping pill which I write about in a pharmacy, but you could get therapy. You may not have money for it, but you could get it, right? And I think that that is helpful, especially when you're thinking about extreme behaviors within relationships that can be seen as defensive and self-protective. And so how do you work that to have a healthy relationship? Or think about the trauma that we have, whether it be at home, right? Or trauma because you were born in a place where there was intense violence or there was a war going on. Traumatized children respond to their trauma history in the present. They are not able to discern that the context has changed. I think about the children who were held in detention center in cages and the border here in the United States and what that says about us as a country and how that has also come out in popular culture. If you remember Jado's performance on the halftime show and she did want to conjure up those images as a way to also show that this is happening in the United States, right? So she did this as her, as she starts singing Born in the USA, This behavior must be seen as an attempt to master extremely difficult environments. In this way, traumatized children are doing the best they can, but are we doing the best we can to provide also ways in which children can see themselves in positive lights and ways in which they can feel more in control of the narrative? And I think a lot of this has to do with the tensions that we see between folk culture and popular culture, right? So what are social customs related to the cultural landscape? So with folk culture, culture that is traditionally practiced by a small homogenous rural group living in relative isolation from other groups, you have that in abundance, right? Throughout the region, independently from having no contact tribes like in the Amazon. But we're talking about the way that also there was for many years a digital divide in the region, right? And so that allowed for less exchange is uh, uh, and more and less westernization it's fascinating to me that my mother keeps tab on all my cousins in this small town because they all have iPhones right so it really changes what becomes accessible what becomes a reference and that's because of the power of popular culture 
which is found in a large heterogeneous society that shares certain habits despite differences in other personal characteristics. And so social customs originate at a Hertz or center of innovation. The Hertz of folk customs are often unknown. So we're not really sure how it emerges because it's not surveilled or observed in the same way as popular culture, which tends to be also a product of more multinational corporations being able to kind of spread their product ideas, values throughout North America, Western Europe and Japan about pop music or fast food and there is a technology to be able to mass produce and leisure time to enjoy those pursuits because they have to go hand in hand. So there are differences though. Differences with folk and popular music exemplify the differences of the culture, right? But I think it's interesting because now you see emerging, right? You could hear the charango in the music of Le Simon Lafarte in Chile, right? She uses uh, these very folkloric instruments or in Vallenato and Carlos Vives, right? He uses a la gaita, which is a very folkloric instrument of Colombia. But he uses it also with electric guitars, right? And and sometimes with, you know, reggaeton beats. There's a fusion, right? Because culture is not static also, Popular music is written and produced by specific individuals to also have a mass appeal to go global, right? Because now uh, these imagined borders between what is our music and their music is now global music, right? So this is why you have Bad Bunny headlining Coachella, right? And so it is important to think about the ways in which cultural diversity and customs develop through centuries of relative relationships, not only from people with people or within people and communities, but ideas, values, the physical environment. I mean, if you think about the role of environmental determinism, the belief that physical environments cause all human activities, that is really something that is one of several controls over social customs. But there are others, customs such as provision of food, clothing, and shelter are clearly influenced by the climate, soil, and vegetation of a place, but also by the environment because some may lack technology to overcome these challenges. But there are broad differences that arise due to physical conditions, but also it is important to understand that the way people choose to live their lives can be at times very different to how those lives are represented in popular culture. And this is why it is important to have authentic voices emerge that are able to be in control of their own narratives and representation because that comes with consequence. The things popular culture does effectively is to challenge memory distortion. What do I mean by this? 
Memory can be distorted as people try to fit new information into existing schemas. Giving misleading information after an event causes subjects, individuals to unknowingly distort their memories to incorporate the new misleading information. This is why misinformation is rampant, especially in times of crisis. We lived it here in the United States during the pandemic where you could get a what's up message from anywhere in the world telling you that COVID is cured with puppies or, you know, ginger or whatever it may be. And so you think about these theories of forgetting, right, where there is an encoding failure, where there is an interference with the way our ideas are being shaped. And think about what motivates people to forget. And at the end of the day, a lot of it has to do that with even though you've seen thousands uh, of truths, right? You've probably never looked at one closely to encode specific features. This is why it is important to be media literate, historically literate, right? Because interference theories exist, memories interfering with memories. So forgetting not caused by mere passage of time, but it's caused by one memory competing with or replacing another one. And this is the type of interference that basically distorts our sense of self. Now, at the end of the day, I want us to think about the ways in which we create meaning as a result of memory or the things that we may not know, but the memory of this truth or this history provides us direction. One of the things that I just have accepted is that my mother's version of history is going to look very different than mine's like we inhabit two different worlds right but when she would tell me about her grandfather who was from Denmark I was like well that sounds also weird like I didn't believe it granted if you look at my mother's brothers and sisters you could see it like there's definitely um an inkling right but I, I didn't believe it. And also because he was so absent, right? And there is this uh, tendency in Latin America, or particularly, let me speak about it in the context of my family, to kind of whitewash ourselves. So even before going to Colombia, like when I was a kid, my mom would put nose pins, clothes pins on my nose, right? To try to make it look thinner, to kind of like hide the fact that I am half black, right? And so it was interesting to me because I never believed my mother until I got those genetic tests done. I was like, eh, I know where I come from. I have a sense, but it was very prominent, right? This genetic truth that I doubted for so long. So now any time that there is something that my mother finds like, you know, that she dislikes or I need to change or that it's rude or whatever it may be that doesn't fit into our family. I always blame it on the Danish blood, right? I'm like, it must be the Danish side of the family. And for her, it's like, how could you say that? But you don't know that part of the family, but because they come from Denmark, it becomes idealized. And I go, well, talk about elasticity of memory, right? Because at the end of the day, my mother's grandfather is one that went through Colombia and never came back. But then when I look at my cousins or these families, members that are just, you know, genetically related to me, I'm able to see features, right? And, 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 and similarities. 
And I think about this in terms of like when you look at a mirror and sometimes things are distorted, right? Because of, let's say, just the way the reflection gets back at you. And I think about this in terms of the memories and the histories that we have in our bodies that may not always appear clear to us. These histories, right? Of violence, of abandonment, of disappearance, of survival, of thriving. And I think that happens when we tell our stories, right? When we make an effort to remember them in their most authentic form. When we tell them with purpose and intention. And that way they become unforgettable. Unforgettable. 